Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the fifth season of Camille's Demi Hour. This is a half-hour show dedicated to sharing the Epicurean life and personal stories from Nantucket and beyond. Thank you for listening, everyone. This is Camille Broderick, host of Camille's Demi Hour on 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station. And today on the show, I'm speaking with Bren Smith, the author of Eat Like a Fish, his story and journey and the highs and lows of being a hardcore fisherman in Newfoundland and Alaska to becoming an ocean farmer in the Northeast. So not just sustainable farming, but regenerative farming for the planet. But here to speak his own words about the book is Bren Smith. Welcome, Bren, to the show. Thanks so much. It's a total honor to be here. Oh, it's our honor. You are the Kelp King, one of the many names of yourself in the book. The book is awesome. Um, It just came out, and uh, I just want to say congratulations. Uh, That's a feat to write a book, uh, aside from all your other accomplishments. Uh, Remind me not to do this again. I'm not a writer. (laughs) So it was a painful process, but as soon as I figured it was, well, this is just like a job. It's my job just to sit down and write for a while. I treated it like fishing. So there's a lot to talk about most importantly is really your story on going from the large fishing industry in Alaska to a sort of 360 and being more of an ocean farmer, a little more relaxed life, uh, not relaxed life, but a calmer, different type of farming. Can you begin with your story in Newfoundland with your family and uh, just just the origins of, of you getting into the fishing industry? Absolutely. So my um, you know, my parents were uh, born and raised in the States, and they went up to Canada during the Vietnam War. They had draft dodgers. And so I was, my sister and I were born and raised in, up in a little town called Maddox Cove, which was the most eastern point in all of North America. And just an idyllic village, you know, fishermen's co-op, little painted houses, red, greens, blues on the on the cliffs. They're all painted with leftover boat paint, kids selling cod tongues door to door. I mean, it was just like postcard um for me it was just sort of the uh, i didn't know any any better it was just the, the water i was swimming in you know and um but it's funny when i was writing the book it it really came clear to me sort of one of the things i really respect and don't want to lose in my life during this sort of transition from commercial fishing to to restorative ocean farming and one of those just like my heroes weren't astronauts and cowboys they were fishermen and you know i'd see them go out in the horizon in the morning and you know they owned their own boats they didn't have bosses they lived self-directed lives and they were had this incredible sense of meaning of, of helping feed the communities i think through my life from fishing to industrial aquaculture and now to farming shellfish and kelp it's like how do you retain that soul of a fisherman sort of jobs that you can still write and sing songs about it's been a theme forever and it's not easy you know they're to look around the economy, it's, there's a lot of sort of junk jobs that are pretty empty out there, and we really need to grasp onto and build an economy around things with meaning. Well, you talk about in the book the fall of the cod industry and how it had affected communities and then into farming fish and how that was unhealthy, and it's packed with information about what happened. Can you, in a recap of some sort, talk about what happened in that collapse? You know, humans are really pretty amazing creatures we you know we, we we sort of trash them a lot for all the destruction we're doing in the environment but there was just so much innovation coming out of world war ii and an attempt to you know, catch as many fish as possible so i was in the bering sea and you know i showed up at the height of industrial fishing so during world, world war ii after the war was over 
all the naval fleet got basically redirected into uh, the private sector. And so even the pilots uh, were in spider spotter uh, planes chasing down schools of fish. You know, sonar radar just radically changed the industry. So when I was there, you know, I was fishing cod, crab, tuna, all sorts of stuff, both from Gloucester to Lynn, but also in the Bering Sea. And, um, you know, tearing up entire ecosystems with our trawls. We were fishing illegal waters, just chasing, you know, fish further and further out to, out to sea. When I was there, the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland. And that was, I think, a real wake-up call. You know, I'm not an environmentalist, but what I learned when the cod stocks crashed was that if we don't protect our, our ocean resources, it's an economic issue. So, um, so for example, for climate change for me, it, it, the view is that there aren't going to be any jobs on a dead uh, planet. So, you know, it's stunning to see an entire economy built up over a hundred years in Newfoundland just decimated overnight, 30,000 people mm-hmm. thrown out of work. It was the largest layoff in Canadian history, both speech and just, you know, that people like wandering ghosts of fishermen just looking for something, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to do to, to fill that void. And that's, that's heartbreaking. We forget environmental community forgets the sort of the emotional and cultural toll that's taken, whether it's in the coal fields uh, or in the um, out on the ocean. Well, you say working to make a living on a living planet, and you still have yeah. this sort of work revolutionist in you. You really love working hard. When you talk about the ocean and being out there and fishing, and you say you feel like a better man on the water, it's not just mm-hmm. this zen feeling of I'm in my moment, I'm working, but you like feeling the pain, feeling the sweat and the burn of the sun. There's there's moments where you, you really define it as just something almost out of this world. You know, the book is definitely a story of ecological redemption, but it's also a story of you know, the redemptive power of work. You know, I, I've had a high-heeled uh, liberals might call it a spotted past. I'm proud of it. Uh, but, you know, dealing drugs in, in jail, fights all the time with police, you know, sort of that whole life. And the water saved me um, out of rehab and all this sort of thing. And, and just this, the, the, the beautiful sort of repetition of, of hard work and hard work that of meaning of feeding people through my life has just really saved me. And, you know, my wife knows the less time I spend on a boat, the more awful I get. She, uh, you know, she forces me out of the house and tells me to get on the water. So I'm a better man. And I think a lot of those of us work in the ocean feel that way. It's just, there's, there's kind of no place like it. Uh, and the honor of being, and the humility of being sort of permitted to work out in the open sea is a, is a stunning feeling. It hasn't been easy. I really miss being a commercial uh, fisherman. It's, I was kind of embarrassed growing seaweeds underwater, uh, getting laughed off the docks. You know, I'm a, I'm a hunter by nature. But in this era of climate change, as there's more pressure on fish stocks, as the fish are disappearing, we have to um, evolve and, 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 do a tr- and make a transition into, into something new. And the key is, how do you keep those core pieces and yes, we can't chase fish, but we still get to own our own boats, no bosses, self-directed lives, and we get to feed our communities. Like that sole piece of the fish we get to get to keep alive, and I think that's really important. 
So what were some of the pivotal moments in your history? There is a lot of stories in this book that lead you to where you are today from living in New York City and, and, and working in some of the flea markets in your transition points. And then you went to law school after you left the fishing industry to get back to education. And what were the pivotal moments for you that you can look back on retrospectively and think, wow, that, that was a moment that really just spun me in this direction? So when I left uh, the aquaculture farms in northern Canada, the salmon farms, uh, disillusioned. You know, I felt like the sea had forsaken me. I, I was no longer a commercial fisherman. Being a fish farmer just wasn't the path. So I went on this search. I was like, I what to do. And my uh, parents were hyper educated. My dad was a linguist. My sister went to Harvard. And so, and I had always, as a high school dropout, always had this deep insecurity that I wasn't, you know, I had working class blue collar education but not formal education. So I tried and uh, I ended up through a whole bunch of you know, happenstance things, ended up at law school and thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a lawyer. And um, it was a total disaster. Uh, you know, <laughs> you should have known was, better. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I was like desperately clinging to what, uh, as I think into the, I had, I had spittoons hidden in my jacket so I could chew in class and I was, drinking uh, you know nonstop all the all the time um, I just absolutely hated it never took the bar or anything and but I still was stuck on land so from law school I you know moved into an old airstream trailer that I ended up living in for uh seven years which uh, by the way if you're going to live in a trailer like six months is pretty romantic <laughs> and uh, by by year six it really falls off. Um, uh, so get in and get in and get in and get out is what I suggest. But I went onto the streets of uh, New York to sell just to make money. And but that actually taught me a, a lot. And what I did was I did woodworking and sold trinkets and hustled tourists essentially on the streets and made these things called reclaim words on reclaim wood where I take rare words out of dictionaries. I set a block and take pictures of, of them you know, with the letters and then stick them on pieces of wood as magnets. So for example, tetracor, the smell of rain on high earth, I'd put on a piece of Coney Island boardwalk wood and sell that for five bucks. I sold thousands of them. But what I learned was that uh, how to sell things and, and to, to sell things was really about storytelling, tapping into that narrative part of people, which is really a beautiful part of books right and so so is when they went home it wasn't about the thing about this little trinket but it was really about the person they met and the story behind this magnet that really helped me help me uh you know learn to sell something as weird and disgusting as kelp what was the first job where you started ocean farming after i first became a an oysterman and this is at the, the beginning of the rise of boutique oystering in the in the, um, the u.s uh, that was hard, right? It was. I killed millions of oysters my first couple of years. It was just like death camps out there because I didn't know how to farm. I didn't have a blue thumb, and I found it really kind of boring, right? Always knowing what was going to come up on the on the boat. It was always going to be oysters. You know, it was more like being an arugula farmer than a uh, than a fisherman. So, but then I got hit by Hurricane Sandy and uh, Irene, and my farm got wiped out two years in a row, uh, and it was sort of a very depressing moment. But I realized I had to sort of remake myself in the, in the era of climate change. I started figuring out different things to grow and learned from my oysters that it, if you look at the ocean as a unique agricultural space, not as a place necessarily to grow what people want to eat. So traditionally, what's always happened with um, aquaculture is there's the salmon disappear, the tuna disappear. And so then you try to grow salmon and tuna. Well, 
if you look, if you ask the ocean, what does it make sense? It says, well, why don't you grow things that don't, uh, you don't have to feed and don't swim away, right? It becomes really uh, pretty, pretty simple. It's cheap to do. It's efficient. You don't need pens. You don't need feed. You don't need any of these things. And so I just started looking out around for other things that are like oysters to grow, uh, different shellfish, you know, mussels, scallops, mm-hmm. clams, started growing them. But then I met uh, what I called, you know, his doctor seaweed, who's uh, now a dear friend of mine, Charlie Yarish, and the, who just happened to be based here in Connecticut. And we went on this journey together of seaweed farmer. He's one of the global experts of seaweed. And um, sort of I embedded his knowledge into my farm, which had become vertical at that point. And we went from there. Yeah, so it's vertical farming because of the way that the farms are grown. And in the book, you have little chapters explaining the farming and how it actually works. But in the book, this was sort of the the turning point where things started taking off and then the, the kelp became something that you wanted to incorporate into restaurants and you got chefs on board from Michelin star chefs because you knew that you needed to get this into different industries and first and foremost, the culinary one. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I don't necessarily like seaweed. It was never something that um, I wanted to grow or, and definitely not something I, I ate at home. It grew so fast. It's just easier to grow plants and animals, so tons and tons of it, and started working with different chefs. What was interesting was I really needed a different take on what these were. And I think the different take is that these are vegetables. And so began working with Brooks Headley, for example, who um, used to be a pastry chef at Del Posto and punk rock musician and now runs Superiority Burger. And he specializes in making uh, vegetables unhealthy right? so that people eat them. He took the kelp and he made barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. Mm. It was just brilliant. So you have the heat of the barbecue sauce, that roundness of the, of the parsnips and then the crunch of the breadcrumbs, and it just completely desuchifies, right, uh, seaweeds. And everybody's like, oh, this doesn't taste like seaweed. And that's the reaction uh, I think I think you want. The kelp sort of took off. There was some media frenzy. In 2017, one of the top 25 inventions of the year, your press is endless, um, just talking about kelp as something for the future, even as possible fuels, fertilizers. I mean, it, it goes on and on. Um, you even track some of the history of, of kelp and seaweed in, in the world, from Asia to the U.S. The history of seaweed, you see these moments where East meets West, but they were, it wasn't just a, 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 a sort of Asian uh, invention. I mean, you know, Irish, Scottish bars, standard food was uh, as a snack with seaweed. There were Italian fritters uh, and uh, fermented seaweeds. The First Nation folks did a, um, they used to smoke seaweeds for a, a month and then um, eat them with uh, fats and with shellfish. And, you know, McDonald's even had a seaweed burger in the <laughs> early 90s I know, that called the funny. McLean sandwich, <laughs> right? And uh, the other thing, you look around the globe, anywhere folk, people were living on the ocean, they were doing things with seaweed. So it's just that this is now the moment to, as you said, recycle or revive this tradition and become uh, and lift it up as a, as a climate crop and a climate cuisine. Uh, you're listening to Bren Smith, the author of Eat Like a Fish, an awesome book that just came out about his journey from being a fisherman in uh, Canada and Alaska to now being an ocean farmer in Connecticut, but really being a part of a movement for uh, helping revitalize the oceans for better working opportunities for ocean farmers. And you want to talk about the carbon offsets? That was another interesting sure. fact about how people can profit or can actually use this in a more business sense? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the basic model of the farm, it's like an underwater garden, 
It's rope scaffolding with some buoys. Very simple, very cheap to do. Right. So that makes it replicable. So anybody with, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a boat and a lease, they can get up and start their own farm. Um, but it's also regenerative. And that means we um, you know, kelp is called the sequoia of the sea. Um, it captures five times more carbon than land-based plants. Oysters, of course, filter nitrogen out of the waterways, which you know, reduces the, the impact of overnitrification and the resulting effect of dead zones. The farm's function is artificial reefs and storm surge protectors. There's just all these incredible uh, regenerative uh, benefits. In that, the, what, we started a nonprofit called Greenwave, which is role is to, is to uh, train a new generation of ocean farmers. And we're finding is the farm of the future looks kind of different. And I think there's some benefits. Yes, we farm food, uh, but both for center of the plate and, you know, supply to big corporate cafeterias like Google. But then also we can create non-food agricultural products like fertilizers. So right now in New England, all of our waste off the farms, everything that's not food grade goes to fertilizers. And that's incredible, right? Building this land, this bridge between land and sea, taking the nutrients that are in the ocean, cycling them back and closing that nutrient loop in our food system. So there's the food part in the farm, but then there's the data piece where we have sensors embedded in four different states on farms and farmers get paid 25 grand a piece to harvest that data. All this different information we need and that data gets sold to tech companies. So suddenly as a farmer, you're a data harvester. And then the third piece of this is uh, what we think of as ecosystem services, which is carbon credits and nitrogen credits, where farmers get paid for the sequestration of carbon that they provide. And so there you are as a farmer, you're harvesting food, data, and carbon credits, and you have all these multiple sources of income. And I think that creates stability and uh, unique revenue streams that we just haven't seen on farms before. What do you think the the holdback was, or what are people's hesitations for this type of work? So, you know, we have, the demand's been huge, huge. We're sitting on 4,000 requests to start farms right now. We have requests to start farms in every coastal state in North America and 20 countries around the world. Like, with this, you don't have to be a, an Amazon or, a, you know, a Google or anything. You can just 20 acres in a boat um, and some investment. You can get going and you can, you know, feed your community and be part of climate solutions. And so GreenWave is really trying to grapple with all that interest now. And our model is we've got a sort of high-touch intensive training program where people get, we help them permit, they get free winter gear from Patagonia, they get seed for two years, and then we, they come to our floating classroom and, and learn how to farm and we go help set up their farms. And then we open up opportunities for them to sell their crops to our, our marketplace network. But that's not enough, right? Because that's a less resource intensive and there's just all this activity around the globe. So our other one that we're rolling out very soon is sort of the low touch model. And that's going to be an online platform. So data sharing, farmer to farmer, uh, learning and connections and toolkits so that people will be able to take this because we open source everything we do, uh, take it and start their own farms without us. You talk a lot about trying to distribute the product and the crops and helping on that aspect too. So Yeah, I mean, because there are tons of challenges. I don't want to oversell this. You know, we have to move supply, infrastructure and demand at the, all, uh, at the same time. We have a market innovation team at Greenway, which is just working on on these um, uh, problems and solutions. I mean, the plastics issue in the ocean is huge. Well, the London Marathon just create, just had their first water bottles made out of seaweed plastics, bioplastics. Right? Oh. Um, so imagine that as a farmer, you can you can actually 
grow packaging. There's a, there are a whole bunch of new kelp packaging companies out there. You know, I have this hope because kelp isn't just, as I say in the book, not just kelp is the new kale, but it's also the soy of the sea, but not evil, right? Soy has all these challenges of monoculture and addiction to pesticides and stuff. But kelp doesn't have those, but I take a page out of the soy industry where they met in the 50s, had a big meeting. And they're like, we're never going to get Americans to eat soy, so we'll put it in everything. And now you look everywhere and there's soy. Well, we're going to do the same thing with seaweeds, but the benefit of seaweeds is that zero input food, no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed. So it has huge benefit in terms of weaving it through. You know, it's already used in pharmaceuticals and as I said, in bioplastics and fertilizers and feeds. It can be used as a, I don't do any no biofuel work, but that's that's something that's you know, possible so uh, it, in, the, in the future. It's inexpensive in some ways, right? Again, why do you think it's been so challenging for people to, to shift mindsets? Is it because it's taking money out of the pockets of other their industries? I think it's the timing, right? We haven't needed to move out to sea. It, you know, the, our, our land-based system is in crisis and people are looking for solutions. Um, so people are looking out in the ocean. Our wild fisheries are in crisis and we can't depend on our wild harvest to fill this growing need. And so now it's time to look at the ocean as a place that we can grow, but grow in a restorative uh, way. And so I think it's just the luck of timing. The other kind of thing about this is that, you know, the oceans are a blank slate. So we get to take all the lessons from land-based aquaculture, all the lessons from industrial aquaculture, and bring them out in the ocean and not make the same mistakes, but also bring all the innovations out. So we can make sure that leases are, are low cost so beginning farmers can access it. We can make sure that, you know, seed isn't privatized to make sure that, you know, justice is woven through this industry all the way through. And can we do food right out right. in the ocean? You know, there are just ocean farmers from every walk, walk of life. They're young land-based farmers that can't afford land. We've got vets. You know, as I said, we have women, First Nations people. It's just the diversity is stunning and I think really exciting. You know, we definitely have lots of former fishermen as well. But this, this is really looking like it's going to be a robust, very diverse uh, uh, economy. And it's as small plots, right? That's the key. Our view of the future of this isn't massive thousand acre farms. But when I think of this as a green wave reef where you have 25 to 50 small scale farms, um, a hatchery and a seafood processing hub on land and then rings of entrepreneurs and then you replicate that green wave reef up and down the uh, the coast. You're hearing Bren Smith, the founder and CEO of Green Wave, which is a it's a nonprofit that helps and educates ocean farmers to build amazing underwater farms and become aquaculturists. And he also has just put out this awesome book called Eat Like a Fish that describes this whole journey of him becoming an ocean farmer from being a, a hardcore fisherman in the the northern bank. Thanks. I just would like to end with one of my favorite quotes from the book that talks about sort of who you are. And I guess you you felt this way when you looked at a picture of a bunch of fishermen in Newfoundland. You say, these men lived good lives. No matter how brutal the work, they refused to leave the water. I am one of them. My meaning comes from the sea. Yes, my hunting days are over, but as an ocean farmer, I am still graced with salt on my lips and skeleton shrimp in my beard. I have the heart of a fisherman and the soul of a farmer. That's pretty moving. <laughs> that's, so, that's so nice of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, congratulations yeah. on your book and best of luck. And I will continue to spread the word, share your book, I guess, and eat kelp. 
use kelp, buy kelp. <laughs> but, yeah, but I mean, every time, every time, every time you cook at home, you're you're creating demand for, for uh, restorative species. So, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely, we've got some recipes in the book that I think are are easy to make, but uh, really delicious. Thanks so much. Total honor to be on. Best to you. Cheers. Oh.